KEZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am Mark Morrow. This is the Henry George Program, the show all about land value, municipal planning, and debate. Uh, today in the program, we have on Patrick Condon, very special guest from Vancouver, who's been working in academia for many years and practice on urban planning and urban design. He has a book, Six City, and has created some controversy uh, between whether Yorkism and, and upzoning bills as they exist now are compatible or not. We'll talk about this, we'll talk about the law of rent, and so much more. But further ado, uh, let's uh, let's get into this debate. So uh, thank you so much for being here, Patrick. Um, glad to be here. Yeah, very, very gracious, uh, you know, uh, in... Uh, as, as things are usually in housing Twitter, uh, we're contentiously discussing the work of Patrick Condon, uh, and uh, Patrick Condon uh, jumped in to say, hey, instead of just talking about it, let's talk about it on your radio show, and that uh, sounds like a great idea. Uh, so to get into it, yeah, I, uh, Patrick Condon in the last year, uh, during COVID, released a book called Sick City. He released it very graciously again for, uh, for free, so it's out there as a PDF. Uh, and it is a book about COVID, about urbanization, uh, and I mean, honestly, I'll just say right off the bat, I think the book itself is, is very good, very interesting. Uh, I think it's a lot of the reaction and the politics around the reception of the book, which is a bit right. controversial. So uh, we'll get sure. into that. Yeah, but let's. so before we start, you want to talk a little bit more about kind of what uh, led you to write the book? Well, uh, as as you as you alluded to, the COVID situation was. Uh, kind of a dramatic interregnum in, in the world and you know all of us hoped for uh, movement in the right direction and in one th- in one way the direction that the property market in housing which is something I've long been concerned with went in the wrong direction uh, in Vancouver but in many other parts of the world the uh, price of rents and housing rents went up by 10% and the cost per square foot of housing here in Vancouver and many other places went up by 20%, so go figure. You know, we expected it to collapse, and I was already concerned about uh, the gap between average wages generally, but again, Vancouver is kind of the basket case, the worst case example of this. The gap between wages and housing costs had reached a point of crisis, and uh, something that concerned me and many other people in very different ways and uh, I felt that I had something possibly to add to that, which essentially came down to the insight that, and it's not original to me, it's, you know, other thinkers have been thinking about this for a while and dating back at least 100 years or even 200 years to the time of Adam Smith, that the problem is really the price of urban land and how the influence of urban land uh, is the underlying uh, pathology that makes uh, both rents too high and housing unaffordable. So, and then you know, of course, I, I tied, I tried, I, I did tie that to the issues of structural inequality that that affect um, many Americans, particularly America, Black Americans who have the legacy of slavery to deal with, and tried to track that forward in terms of land ownership and the way that they were prevented from acquiring land and through zoning. Uh, strategies still are prevented from acquiring land, and the effects of overcrowding today in in different places that that are you know directly corresponding to higher incidences of of, of you know disease and COVID. That's right. That's yeah. right. Which is which is uh, inordinately black and brown Americans, but not just black and brown. 
people of lower income, whatever their color skin is, are, are affected in similar ways because they live in overcrowded apartments. Uh, they may be immigrant communities, that's another factor, but they live in communities that are also, uh, their neighbors have the similar circumstances. So they're in contact in their cafes and in the workplaces and so forth. And the statistics really bear that out. So that was my motivation. So I, th I think here's the, the major, I guess, surprise, which is like, okay, you know, here's a book about urban land rents. Fantastic. People don't talk about it enough. Uh, and actually, the book treats it, I'd say, in a, in a very good way. Uh, someone who wants to reform the way that urban land rents act to the uh, benefit to people. And in this book is, you know, citing Henry George throughout. Uh, why is it then <laughs> that you're on the, like, the California Georgist and actually other people I know that Vancouver Georgist basically are all like kind of... Uh, we're on opposite sides of like some big argument, and like, how did that happen? It's, it's yeah, kind of Adam, yeah. You tell me. But uh, the, uh, the the tra the political trajectory of this, I think, is that people in California picked up on my book who were suspicious of the new legislation that's that seeks to overrule local control on zoning for the purpose of creating affordable housing, and they 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 were. Uh, glad to have support for their contention in the parts of my book that talk about the fact that adding additional density to a neighborhood in the absence of some kind of uh, policy controls uh, may not achieve the objective of increased affordability. In other words, it's my work challenges the theory of supply and demand, which is the dominant uh, impetus, I think, behind the legislation in California and elsewhere, which seek to uh, basically override local zoning authority to insist that single-family home areas are rezoned for multiple dwellings. And I think those people, to be honest, kind of miss my other point, which is that density is a good thing in many ways. And I've had a long career of 40 years of advancing middle, middle missing middle uh, density for demographic reasons, for walkability reasons, for sustainability reasons. But my only argument is that under present global economic circumstance, just increasing density allowance in, in the hope or the belief that you will increase affordability doesn't seem to be borne out by the evidence. And that's not the only point I'm trying to make. I'm saying if that is the case, if it's not working to increase affordability, what do we do? And my argument is that do not just increase allowable density in the absence of policy constraints, only allow density increases in return for affordability. And there are various ways to do that, inclusive zoning, uh, uh, Cambridge's affordable uh, housing overlay zoning, various ways that zoning tools, which have been constitutionally supported by the U.S. Constitution and California a Supreme uh, Supreme Court over the years are, are, are adequate tools for us to use in the context of thinking about densifying presently no dense low density neighborhoods yeah I think, I think there's two responses here uh, I mean are two kind of you know different avenues both are interesting one is uh, has to do with kind of the political landscape and one has to do with the policy landscape of how these ideas are being approached. And I think the political landscape, I think, is a little bit easier to understand, uh, which is like, so like in the last year, it's you, after you release Six City, you make a you made a speaking appointment down with Livable California for a webinar. Uh, and as you say, I think these people clearly just want some reason to oppose legislation. 
And I think in the past, uh, they'll they'll listen to anybody who says like, oh yeah, more density is not a good thing, and just ignore everything else they say. Uh, I think one of the great ironies I heard in the last uh, few months, uh, Berkeley, who actually has kind of a pro-density but also pro-affordable housing majority, uh, was uh, was uh, approving a uh, affordable housing overlay. That's and, correct. And uh, someone, one homeowner came in to the, uh, giving comments saying, this is a bad idea. Uh, in fact, adding more density is a bad idea. I heard this from the, the uh, academic, Patrick Condon. <laughs> says this is a bad idea. Yeah, well, they didn't read the book because chapter seven, half of chapter seven is is entirely devoted to the affordable housing overlay yeah. of Cambridge. And, you know, it answers the question under these circumstances, what do you do? And my answer is the affordable housing overlay in Cambridge. Yeah, absolutely. It's right there in black and white. I, I, I guess my point is, I think the political uh, underlying message, which I think can't be underlined enough, is there is a large amount of basically conservative status quo oriented homeowners, and they all basically are homeowners, who don't want anything to change. They don't want affordable housing overlays. They don't want to discipline the market. They don't want anything to change. And honestly, I think unless you address them head on and say, part of the way to achieve any better world, including exploring this toolbox of value capture, means defeating these people. And I, I, I worry that if if you seem to be, you know, accepted and cheered by these people, I wonder, you know, what that says about, well, are you are are is the entire are we doing enough as a whole to take these people on? And that's my that's kind of my political thought. Well, my political thought, Mark, is I hope that you can help me advance the other side of that case. Yeah. Because uh, because again, to reamp to reemphasize, adding density adding density is necessary for a variety of reasons, and it is possible to add density in a way that enhances affordability, and we ought to all collectively understand what those mechanisms are and agree to them. So I end up, uh, for political reasons, choosing to advance the idea of the Cambridge affordable housing overlay as a model, because I think we have the political tools in every community to do that. I think it's a good, it's a good precedent because in Cambridge, the elected officials and the planning officials and the non-governmental organizations who are, who are desperate to provide uh, affordable housing all got together and came up with the, a plan and it took them four years to get it approved. And they had to fight against the same kind of, I, I hesitate to use the word intransigence, but let's use the word resistance of people fearful of changing their neighborhoods. And through uh, very careful urban design explorations where they literally showed what that three-decker equivalent uh, would look like going next to your single-family home in your neighborhood and why that was uh, and how that was hit. This is an important point in Cambridge. They overcame the NIMBY resistance in large part, I believe, by really talking about affordability and saying, we, this is a strategy not to add density to your neighborhood. This is a strategy to enhance affordability. And politically, I think we're at a, I, I hope we're at a break point because the average, you know, middle-class boomer, like, and I'm, I, I number myself in that group, are not 
I'm not unaware of the, the, the severity of the housing crisis. The ones that I end up talking to are aware of this crisis. Their own children are being forced not to live in their, the, the cities that they grew up in anymore as a consequence of this. They end up, many of them, being, however, suspicious that just adding density is not going to be the solution to that problem. And they look around, they see a few examples of, 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 of new projects that come in nearby that are marketed as luxury condo condos or luxury apartments units, which, which fortifies their skepticism. So I'm hopeful that there can be a dialogue with those people uh, uh, analogous to what has happened in Cambridge. And, and I, I'm an urban designer. I'm not a real estate economist. I'm, I'm basically nothing but a designer. So I really believe that the design strategy in Cambridge was very important to show people what these would look like and to, be, and to build faith that this was really about affordability and not just being the vanguard of what they would call developer interests and people raping their neighborhoods and all the things you hear from NIMBYs when they come, NIMBYs when they come to meetings. You know, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. But, but my view is we have a, a political problem here and it occurs at the neighborhood level. And I do believe there are solutions to it. But but I, I'll only say one more thing and then it'll be your turn. But I do not think, you know, you said it, basically the NIMBYs come out, the NIMBYs come out and they, they, they yell and scream. What we haven't talked about yet is the broad scale and the, and the uh, California legislation embodies this belief, the broad scale belief that just adding supply will solve the affordability problem. And I do not believe that anymore, that adding supply ends up under present circumstances uh, not influencing the housing market to the point where the price per square foot either it either manifested through rents or purchase price for condominiums or detached housing is reduced that's that's my major point yeah so i think i have you know again on the two avenues my mind is still flipped into the politics mode uh, and i think i do have like I, I partially agree and partially disagree with some of these claims I'd like to get to that more but i think one thing i want to say is more than anything, if you ask me, do I support you know density bills now because they will make things more affordable? And my answer is no. Uh, that is not my reason. My reason is actually because uh, I believe they are going to be a political win insofar as they will uh, break up kind of entrenched communities of exclusion. Uh, I think they're effective bills because they're uh, bills that oppose segregation. Uh, they oppose basically atomized, you know, distant, you know, detached family uh, culture. And I think, and, it, and, and more than that, it, it will eventually disrupt systems of people who treat their home more as an investment, which homeowners do, and will create renters. And even if someone's a condo owner, they own less of the land. So they're going to be more likely in the end to support radical measures to discipline land markets. Whereas homeowners are the least likely people to support Georgia's, uh, you know, Georgia's paradigm. Uh, homeowners are incredibly anti-Georgist, uh, is my read. Well, in my yeah, uh, my first response to what you've just said, Mark, is I get that. I totally get that. 
And I did say earlier that new density is a good thing for many, many reasons. So my belief is that to imagine that new density is going to immediately create increased affordability is where I disagree. So the things that you allude to that are the sort of systemic possible consequences, I'm not sure that you're correct, but I can understand the argument that the systemic possible consequences of breaking down the single family zoning would in the long term lead to uh, the, the reintegration of different minority groups into neighborhoods, uh, uh, the de-emphasis on, on land value, the, you know, the sort of watering down of concern about land value and so forth that would uh, align with some kind of Georgist premise. So, so I agree. I agree. I agree with that. And I don't want this to be a, a, a discussion of violent agreement. between. <laughs> sure. And yeah. So, so, so I will disagree with you now that I think these legislations miss an opportunity that all they had to do was put a clause in and say, in the process of breaking down this, this, uh, this, this barrier of single family zoning, we also will insist on uh, some level of uh, affordability pegged to average wages. And if they would do that, they would both achieve, I think, that social objective, plus they would discipline the land market. Because if they were insisting on that for every new development, it would influence the project pro forma and the assessment of what the land value was. And all of the developers that would be going into compete for that project would have to acknowledge that this new project was going to uh, need to have 20%, I like 50% personally, let's say 50% affordability based at 30% of prevailing of prevailing wages and, and, and perpetually pegged to that. The end result on what they call the residual value of the land would be the residual value of that land would be affected. It would certainly be reduced. So my argument, which I think the, the people in the, uh, the the neighborhood groups that have found a, a support for their argument are, uh, are, 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 are drawn to is that, uh, you know, if we're just, it, we shouldn't just increase density without that, with that, without that uh, demand for affordability. Yeah, I, I suppose th there are ways. I mean, some of the other ways, and you get well, you get some value capture. Uh, one of that is inclusionary zoning. Right. And insofar as you know, the bills that are out actually retain uh, existing IZ rates, uh, it really would produce more, you know, it, it would do this value capture at a larger scale because it'd be more of it. Uh, so I, I would say in some sense, uh, the value capture is in fact baked into these bills. Could it be baked in more? Uh, I would say, you know, possibly. I think these bills are far from, uh, far from, from perfect. They certainly don't achieve uh, an explicitly Georgist end. Uh, but I would say that, you know, this is something I, I was saying on Twitter before you reached out to me. I think this entire mindset of how to achieve value capture, it's a very interesting approach, which is how do we approve, uh, how do we get value capture upon the changes, upon when anything changes, how do we get value capture from these changes, as opposed to we live in a world of enormous inequity. There okay. is a okay. lot of value stored up with landowners right now. That's right. Uh, and, you're right. And when we don't act, which is 
the status quo is what we do every time these bills fail. It's every time what livable California wants to see. They want That's to see the status quo. Yeah. We don't take on the uh, the inequities that are baked in. We, If you only get value capture on the changes, uh, the landowners get away with it. And that is kind of what the land value capture paradigm has been, certainly in like San Francisco and the Bay Area for the last 50 years. And I think uh, it's... Uh, I think it has like very lofty aims, but the politics are bad because in the end, it's a recipe for doing nothing. And that's why I worry about. Yeah, I get that argument. So let me let me uh, let me throw this back at you. Uh, And tell me if I'm getting this right. I think what you're saying is that if we just open up the landscape and reduce uh, eliminate most of the fetters of the thing we call zoning, low density zoning, essentially, that it would unleash a new economic context that would, in the long term, uh, redistribute that land value in a way that made it more accessible to a broader demographic uh, cross section, both in terms of age cohorts and income cohorts, and also ethnic cohorts. Do I have that right? I think that's, that's part of. I wouldn't say unfettered, but I would say certainly less fettered. I'd say that the 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 state we're starting with right now is a state of R one zoning nearly everywhere. You know, it's it's a very locked down system. Yeah, I know. And, and I would say this ground, like the baseline, is a very bad baseline to work with. At the very least, uh, I would say I'd like to move to a baseline of basically maybe you know. 20 plus, uh, you know, units per acre uh, with higher density around, uh, you know, larger transit hubs, uh, but certainly not R1 everywhere. Uh, and I think when you have that, then you, you have a much better baseline. And if you want to move above that, uh, then you you could still have, you know, uh, I, I think you can still have regulations that you could use to exploit land subsidies, even if you don't go fuel. Yeah, but uh I'm kind of rambling. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I, I've heard this discussion on all my good friends in this uh, who, who are concerned with this question take different positions. So, of course, I've, I respect that position. And I respect my friends who are also concerned about uh, housing, which is indeed a crisis. So with that violent agreement, I will disagree with you for, for, for a little while here, Mark. I think, I think what it comes down to uh, between what you're saying and what I'm saying is I don't have faith that under present global economic circumstances that I use the word unfetter, so so forgive me for using it. I don't have faith that unfettering the system uh, in terms of land use control, which presently does protect all those R1 owners, and, you know, I can accept the idea that that's at the disadvantage of almost everyone who's not lucky enough to be situated on on that piece of dirt with this this incredibly increasing land value. So, uh, so I I accept that part. Uh, what I don't what I don't accept, or what I what I suspect is not true, is under present global circumstances, if we unfettered that system, would it would it achieve even in the long term? the benefits of increasing equality manifested in uh, in broader access to decent housing and good neighborhoods. I'm, I'm not confident in that. And I think we've entered a period since the 19, 
since basically, well, basically since 1980, but certainly since 2008, where the situation in the world, where the gravitational pull of money towards the 1% and the billionaire class uh, is so dramatic that it's, it's now worse than what we used to call the Gilded Era back in the turn of the 20th century, that there is so much gravitational pull towards that class and away from the average wage earning class that it becomes very, very difficult to imagine how you can let the free market system operate in a way that would, that would mitigate against what we see as a current problem. I have come to decide, I have come to believe that this is a new moment akin to the progressive era in, in American politics in the 1920s prior to the crash when so much of this kind of George's thinking was coming along that the diagnosis that Henry George best articulated becomes increasingly important and in, 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 a, in a bumper sticker way the basic problem is that all the value of entrepreneurs in cities and workers in cities is becoming absorbed into, into land value. That was his, what he said. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. And we need a strategy to attack that problem and redistribute that land value, which is moving away from wage earners towards wage earners. And we need to do that Monday. And the best strategy I can think of is to use the zoning tools that we have available to us now to insist in the context of upzoning all this R1 landscape in California is the most dramatic example, and you read about that. In the context of that legislation to get rid of R1, to when a, a parcel's use changes, it must change towards a certain percentage of designated and specific and perpetual affordability linked to wages. Now, we have, I'll say one more thing, I'll turn it back to you. Uh, we haven't had that idea in our political consciousness since at least the 1980s when the neoliberal world became dominant under the so-called Reagan-Thatcher revolution. We thought we gave up on public housing those days and, and we said the market can do it. And we are still dominated. This Yimby NIMBY thing is still dominated by an underlying, underlying non-acknowledged uh, adherence to the neoliberal formulation that the market can solve all problems if it's only unfettered. I no longer believe that's even remotely true. Okay, so that's, I mean, I think there's a lot of agreement I have uh, with, with you there. Uh, I would say my main, here's more of like a thought experiment, which is just, you know, we're treating the idea that we move, if we move from here to there, if we move from our current paradigm to a world in which there is more uh, by right density, this would be unfettering. Uh, and I would say in some ways, this treats where we are now as being at once fettered and less market driven than that than the future place we could be so we're a now be b what i would contest is i'd say where we're at now is in some ways fettered in other ways it is unfettered and could be more fettered uh and i would say that the paradigm we live under is part of you can call it a privatized neoliberal paradigm 
uh, to point out a fetter we have right now. Uh, it, like, and this even goes with some of these, you know, solutions. Let's say you add an affordable housing overlay, uh, you know, which is to say you keep low density as a default, but if you reach a higher density, uh, part of this additional value will be used for subsidized use. Great. Right. This is win, win, win. But here's a problem. What if someone says, you know what? No, thanks. I am instead going to remain zoned R1 and I'm going to sell my house to someone else for 3 million bucks. <laughs> that is, that That's is a good question. And that is someone who is currently like they're just skirting the, the, this entire value capture scheme and they are operating in a financialized, highly privatized, highly speculative game of trading real estate. And this is all kosher within our world. And why is it why is it we have some fetters, such as low-density zoning, but not others, such as 100% capital gains taxes on real estate sales? Like, it's very unusual that we, and I would say uh, very suspiciously uh, favorable to homeowners, that the fetters we don't have are the ones that enrich homeowners. And I would say, if you want to say, I will never stand for density until we get value capture, I'd say, okay, but how about we fetter the homeowners as they are right now? which nobody is talking about. And I would say that's that's kind of one, one thought. And that's a good thought. Uh, and my response to that is, yeah, that's a problem. Uh, my best response to that is that I, I also think, and Portland did this, uh, that you should downzone R1. You should, you should re reduce the allowable FSR on, on the R1s simultaneously with the affordable housing overlay. They, they, they reduced the uh, single-family allowance for their R1 zones in Portland. There's, I think there's other flaws with their, with their ordinance, but one thing I thought was really good was that if you want to rebuild a single-family home in that, it has to be a much smaller home now than the one that was allowed, which also has, also has the policy consequence of reducing the value of land for the R1 purpose. Uh, uh, your larger question is why not uh, capital gains tax? Why not uh, a tax on uh, the, the tax on the status quo? In other words, yeah. Do why not? Why not really uh, tax dirt? Basically, is what George said, and what yep. they're doing in Pennsylvania. Why not just tax dirt at a high level and not the buildings? I I also agree with that. And if and if we could do that. If we could, you know, if we could have a major a policy shift in our world and uh, shift the way the, uh, the, the instrument of uh, tax policy operates now, which is largely going, ag largely tacking income and corporate profits and bias that towards uh, a tax that uh, largely biased, uh, largely drew away from the profitability of capital gains and uh additional tax on on dirt that would uh, make dirt less less attractive and and uh, an investment and use that money that you gain to direct towards social purpose which was george's argument in our case the social purpose which is desperate is housing and we don't really have a national model you know you get places like vienna where they have a national model where they've done that for almost a, they have done that for literally a hundred years so that 55 percent of their housing is now non-market housing 
And the, the financing of that has been entirely through the kind of mechanisms that we're talking about. In my book, you know, this current book, I'm saying, I don't think that's politically possible now, but we do have these zoning mechanisms that we could use tomorrow. And they've made it through the Supreme Court and the, and the, uh, and the, and the Supreme Court of California and most of the states. It's legal. We're doing it already. We just have to really bring this, this strategy up to scale. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I, I think you and I, you know, maybe tend to agree on, on, on the underlying land economics that is really the problem here and, you know, have our differences on the policy strategies that are practical and politically feasible under present circumstances to, as a corrective. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say, I mean, again, I think there's a policy approach, a political approach. Here's the last, I think, of my political responses, which is, I, I mean, the, the, the great advantage of a land value tax is it's broad, you know, it covers everything, uh, and there is essentially no dead weight insofar as, you know, the land's going to continue to exist. I'd say the other tools, which are kind of backdoors of value capture, this is, you know, inclusionary zoning, this is project by project right, uh, right, value right. capture exactions, extra density bonuses right, uh, for affordable right, housing. Right. I would say these are all, they all have a lot of advantages. My only real worry, or my large worry is there is a very high chance they'll be intentionally misdesigned by people who want them to fail. I think if you create an inclusionary zoning uh, system, I would say a good system, the perfect system would be you create the right bonus, it actually creates affordable housing, and then suddenly you, like, you look around and suddenly everywhere is being redeveloped. And then suddenly like you're getting 20%, 50% everywhere. And then like, boy, right. the entire world transformed. If you do it badly, what do you get? You get deadweight loss. And what does deadweight loss look in this sense? It would look nothing happens. And you see this happen. People propose, people who say like, oh, I'm a a homeowner, uh, but like I I just care so darn much about affordable housing. Let's make it 85%. And what happens is not a single darn thing gets built. And who's happy? Like, and I mean, I think to point the fingers, bad faith people who nerf the bill to create the status quo being privileged and nothing changing, get exactly what they asked for. And that I think is a meta political problem, which is these are all very powerful value capture tools. If you do it right, how do we make sure we don't allow bad faith actors to do it wrong? Which I think is what we see a lot of the time. I agree with almost everything you said. I think, and basically what what we're talking about here comes down to a strategic choice. Which, which depends on when you make a strategic choice, do you think this will work politically or this other thing will work politically? And we all have reasons to be very skeptical in either case about the political, about the chances of political success based on the observed reality that, that I've witnessed throughout my whole life. It's been, a, it's been terribly depressing. So at the moment I've made the choice that uh, the existing tools that we have are the best strategic choice, which is inclusive zoning or affordable housing overlays, even though I know that a more systemic approach would be a land value tax where you direct all where you direct that new money towards social benefit and the social benefit we need now is housing. 
So you would do what Vienna did. You would have a huge 50% sector in time that was non-market housing. You would decolonize the land of your cities, in effect, permanently. That, that's, I think, you know, a, a, a very dramatic ambition. <laughs> the politics using, are hard. Good luck. But, but using very simple existing tools. Uh, well, I, I've confused. I've I've I've, uh, I've I've combined the two. The politics of changing the tax strategy, where you actually did tax uh, every single family home, uh, if you tripled the the tax on every single family home that was out there, uh, with a with what Pennsylvania does in some cases with the land being uh, taxed at five times the the value of the improvements. So if you have a lot of land in a tiny house, you're fucked. Uh, you know, and that's a, that's a pretty good strategy, and that's very much in the mold that Henry George talked about. But when Henry George was alive, that he didn't have zoning as a, as a strategy. Yep. And I have just made, you know, in the book. Maybe I'll change my mind next year, but maybe Mark, you'll convince me tonight that the best strategy is to like tax land all over the place and then stream that money into affordable housing. And that will both drive down the value of land and increase the, the coffers for building affordable housing. Yeah, that that's probably a more systemic approach. I just don't, I'm skeptical that that's not the, that's not the low hanging fruit path towards this end. Oh, absolutely. I have, I mean, yeah. I, no, no, I'll give you, I'll, I'll turn it over to you in a moment. I just want to make one more point. Also not recognized in your assessment there is if you do have a broad scale, let's say for example, affordable housing overlay, in effect that operates as, call it a tax if you will, because if the whole city of Cambridge land market knows that no new density is available to them, that means that the land value will be stabilized. In fact, it might even be reduced in, in, in the most optimal circumstances because the present price of that land bakes in an assumption of future uh, increases in value, which may be increases in density possibility, which happens certainly in Vancouver. So if you use these zoning tools and you discipline the land market over time, in a, in a way it does the same thing as a broad scale land tax on everybody's parcel and avoids the political problem because the only people that would be pissed off would be the land on, the land speculators who want to you know cash out on that two acre parcel in downtown you know in in central square in in, uh, in cambridge you know what i mean yeah, I mean, the logic is inescapable, but I think if you look at maybe some of the empirics on it, you know, for example, this, this exact theory is laid out uh, by a theorist in San Francisco uh, 50 years ago, Calvin Welch, and his thing is we need to downzone San Francisco, and we need to perform value capture by on project by project, we create exactions for community benefit. Right. Exactly. And this will actually, as opposed to people being worried about gentrification and the uplift in land value, by downzoning will keep a land value low. And, you know, I, I think certainly broadly, certainly in the short to medium term, it's not wrong. Downzoning does decrease land value. But what happens, you flash forward 40, 50 years, uh, we have single family zoned housing in San Francisco selling for $2 million. We have the median price in Palo Alto over $3 million. And these are all zoned low. So like, 
what's happening here? I think that the plan of downzoning leads to low val- low land value. It doesn't quite work if the pressure just builds underneath and you're doing nothing to relieve it. Uh, and I say I'd say the tools of you only get value capture exactions on changes just continues to build up this low and low and low pressure. Uh, it's like strapping a girdle on someone who's just gaining weight. Like it just the pressure builds, and like you don't actually solve the core problem. And I'd say that uh, you would say, oh, we're just you get value capture as you need it. But like no, like nothing really changes. You know, Palo Alto is enormously inequitable even though they've you know it's like it I, i'd say the problem of these policies going badly seems to be extremely likely and that's what has happened in reality and i think we need to we need to do more to make sure that the status quo isn't the path we take that's what i worry about yeah yeah i, I get what you're worried about so i have a quick question for you then i have something else to say, but do you think uh, that there's a blend of these two strategies that you only get, uh, you get certain benefits uh, from, uh, you know, uh, when there's an upzoning, you demand affordability in return on the one hand, and then across maybe the whole state, you say, uh, R1 zoning is gone, so it's minimum four dwelling units per lot across the state. Do you think those things can coexist or they are they incompatible? I'd say, honestly, they are absolutely aligned and the and them not in conjunction is, I think, unworkable. You know, for instance, Berkeley. Berkeley got rid of single family zoning, replaced with quadplex zoning uh, in the last year, and they put in affordable housing overlay. These are the same people who are looking at creating a better baseline and more value capture within, you know, California has a screwed up system, obviously Prop 13, uh, but we do what we can because I think these are people who really want to see change. They are serious actors of change, whereas uh, the Palo Altos of the world, pretty much everybody who invited you to live with California, they not only don't want to densify to a better baseline, but they will not actually create sensible value capture because they are conservatives. <laughs> like conservatives will never help you. Well, I understand the kind of political polarities that are underlie this whole thing. I totally get that. And that's a that's a worm. That's a rabbit hole. We could spend a lot of time going down, but I totally get that. Uh, but I also would interject very briefly that in this particular instance, you get very peculiar alignments of people on the right side of the conservative uh, progressive spectrum and the left side for, for very different reasons. You're, I'm, I'm sure you're very well aware of that. Uh, very briefly, I will say that I'm suspicious. My own feeling is I hope you're right, Mark. I hope that in general, in terms of trying to adjust this system towards maximum equity in the housing market, which, I, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think inequality is largely addressable through housing, most importantly. It's not flat screen TVs that cost too much. It's not uh, double latte mochas that cost too much. It's housing that costs too much, you know? So that's the fundamental element of inequality. And I fear that if you do, if you simply upzone the world, and also ask for uh, uh, affordability benefits in some other context of upzoning, going above that, uh, 
base up zoning, you've lost the, you've lost the opportunity because the context has elevated yet again the value of all that land up to whatever it represents in terms of the allowable density on that parcel against the background of in Vancouver, for example, it's 1200 bucks per, per built square foot, whether it's rental or condo and everything else filters down. So when you add, add that allowable density without that extraction, what simply happens is the only beneficiary of that is the land speculator. Now I know this debate on that point. I know that just because I say it, doesn't make it true. So I get that this is not going to be resolved in a conversation between you and I. But I will provide some evidence that the city of Vancouver has since the 1980s done something very peculiar uh, for, for very uh, site-specific reasons that I don't have time to go into. They have said that if we're going to upzone a building or a district, we're going to recapture 80% of what they call the land lift as a consequence of our doing that increased density allowance. And when you look at the image of Vancouver with all those towers, basically, and I will, I will speak to the caveats in a moment, basically 80% of that entire land lift end up, ended up going into public purpose. And they didn't use that for, they didn't use that exclusively for affordable housing. They used it for libraries and daycare centers and parks and the city is beautiful as a consequence of that land value capture. But the only point I'm making is land, uh, is Vancouver provides a brilliant example that you can capture on a project by project or a district by district basis, 80% of the lift and you get the discretionary opportunity to put that wherever you want it. So that has encouraged me that this idea of using the machinery of development as the tool, as the moment for extracting that value towards public purpose is more than possible. It's, it's demonstrably efficaciously, it has occurred in Vancouver more so than in any other North American municipality and I've studied it. So that's why I'm that's why I'm who I am on this topic. That's why I'm, that's why I end up thinking, well, it's the moment of development that you have the opportunity and you do have tremendous development pressure from your generation, people who need housing and all that kind of stuff. Some of you can afford market housing in a higher density form. Good for you. You know, you'll make your five to 10% per year. I hope forever. Good. Buy that market condo. Why not also have next door to you at a 50% level, a non-market unit so that you balance the non-market with the market so that in time, by the time you're my age, uh, we would have a, uh, an urban world where we would have the same kind of balance that uh, Vienna has where they have 50% non-market, 50% market. And you know, the smart people who have the money, they buy the market stuff because they make money on it. It's great. Good for them. They have a retirement account, but the other half who don't have a hope in hell of ever coming up with a 20% down payment because they can't go to the bank of mom and dad have decent homes on the same street as those other people in the market units. I know that's a bit of a polemical speech on my part and forgive me for that, but yeah, it's hard. It's heartfelt. No, I mean, I, I think I think there's you could look around a lot of places, and the Vancouver, uh, you know, the the growth and value capture you've seen is an indication value capture is possible. I I, I certainly agree, and it's good. 
and but I, I I suppose the other question is is it broad and is it working at the scale we need? And I think I, I think I'm I'm actually pretty you know sympathetic to a lot of cases saying upzoning in practice has been largely inequitable and largely has not been very effective. But I agree. And I mean I think but I think my real response is, you know, a real broad-based upzoning program has not been tried. You know, the the upzonings we see in process seem to be we will upzone a few neighborhoods in near the city core in gentrifying areas, certainly not the affluent white people neighborhoods, but we will actually upzone areas that uh, you know, of largely disempowered, you know, communities and we will, you know, and and then you see what happens. It creates a localized displacement to these spot zonings and in the end like like it certainly uh, you could even say like oh maybe there's help you know this e- the density has advantages for de- uh, for transit and so on but certainly if you only upzone the poor neighborhoods like that's not equitable but that's what we've seen and i'd say the yeah. california bills do a lot to they're getting the rich homeowners angry and that's a good sign i i'd say the fact that I, to say that upzoning we've seen in the past discredit what I'd say are more comprehensive, broader, and essentially less regressive upzonings, I'd say they're not really fair to compare the two. Yeah, well, I don't have all the answers, Mark, and neither do you. I mean, you know, uh, I, 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 I operate from a basis of what I know in Vancouver. So to your point of uh, uh, upzonings have been too localized, often concentrated on low-income areas to the detriment of existing residents and those things. I, I understand that, and that's that's undebatable. That that is a that is a that is a goddamn problem. That in the way that it has been op, that it has been done largely in the United States, and frankly, largely in California, given the severity of the crisis there, which is unprecedented or unequal to the to the issue in other states in the United States. Even even New York doesn't have the same level of this problem that you're experiencing there. Now, having said that, another West Coast city that I happen to have lived in for nearly 30 years effectively rezoned the entire city gradually over 15 years. The the so-called R1 district what we would think of as basically single family homes and zoning districts which covered over 60 percent 60 to 70 percent of the geographic footprint and only had 15 percent of the uh no 30 percent somewhere around i don't know let's call it 20 percent of the people on 60 percent of the land uh as a response to the same things that we're talking about that are that are egregious in california the the public and this and their elected officials gradually first uh legalized basement suites which were already there you know it's mostly bungalow houses on very small lots most of which already had illegal suites so the first thing they did was legalize that and that that brought in like thirty thousand new dwelling units into the legal inventory and then they uh then they increased uh, the allowable density on um, all of the 200 kilometers of arterials so that you have a commercial first floor in many locations, and then now it's up to six floors, and that brought in another many thousands more. And more recently, they uh, and then in addition to that, 
we have lanes in the entire city. Every block has rear lanes. Every one of those rear lanes has a legal opportunity to uh, put a, a lane house in, what they call a lane house. Some people call them granny flats. So that's, that's that. And then finally, and most recently, the city of Vancouver has said, uh, every single family home lot, what we call single family home lot, now is authorized to be a duplex. And each one of those two duplexes can have a rental suite. So these 3,000 square foot lots are legal for four dwelling units. That means that the dirt can every 800 to 900 square feet of the dirt can accommodate a dwelling unit. Now that that has increased the inventory. And, and what I'm talking about now did not have an exaction associated with it. All of those changes to the broad, the broad total city were just now by right, you can do all these new things. So nobody asked for tax money and land lift on that. And all of that was done in the presumption that that huge change in the context would deliver affordable housing. And during that four, and during that 15 years, I'm sad to say, and I was an advocate for a lot of those changes, or, and I still am an advocate for those changes for a variety of reasons. It's better. These neighborhoods are better if small families have smaller units and all this stuff. But the result, unfortunately, the evidence on the ground has not been a mitigating of price rises, certainly not a reduction in per square foot price rises. It has ended up being a 300% increase in the per square foot cost of that housing. So I have, of course, become skeptical of, of a strategy that says, let's just, let's just open up this whole metro region to that kind of strategy, which Vancouver has already experimented with. And I wouldn't say go back against it. You know, there's other benefits that I've mentioned. But if affordability was one of the benefits that you were anticipating, unfortunately, it didn't work out. And that is why, reluctantly, I've decided that these density increases should not come in the absence of affordability requirements. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting to kind of talk about, you know, the dramatic changes in Vancouver and to actually look at Vancouver. How does this redound into the shape of the city? Right. And it's still like, I mean, go into 3D mode and Google Earth and zoom around like Vancouver has an incredibly compact skyscraper zone. And then you look around. Nothing else is above, you know, one, two stories. You know, it's it's wild just how. Uh, basically the shape of the city is so flat in, in so low density for so much of it. And I think here's the, I mean, I think to go back, I earlier I promised of the policy idea uh, that I pushed back on, will density in general, uh, does it affect affordability? Uh, and I'd say if you actually make it happen, which is to say, I don't think Vancouver really densified in practice enough. They legalized it. And this is actually a big reason I'm not that thrilled over legalizing quadplexes. In the last couple of years, Minnesota built like a handful. Portland built like a handful. Like, you need to do more than legalize it. You need to, I mean, to put a too fine a point on it, you need to mandate it. You need to, like, you need the carrot and the stick. Uh, but overall, uh, there is a claim that you make in the book and elsewhere that effectively 
the more you densify, the per unit cost will remain the same or increase, which will mean affordability will never be affected. Uh, which is there's a there's a drawing uh, that you know has gone around. Let me let me pull it up. It's a little picture of a purple house uh, on a on a. Yeah, single I know. I know the drawing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can describe it. I, I, I have it in front of me, but if you want to describe what it says. It's, it's a little house, and then it goes to four stories, and the cost per square foot stays the same because the land price quadruples. Yeah, actually, I'm seeing an image on, on the Livelo California website. They, <laughs> they love it. Uh, it's the uh, before rezoning. It's a million-dollar house uh, on a million-dollar plot. I mean, just basically, I mean, in the, the, the cost per is basically a million per unit. And then after rezoning, it's four stacked up. It's a four, you know, it's a million dollars per house. And now the land price is $4 million. Yeah, it's fourth grade math, but that has turned out to be the case in Vancouver when we have experienced these density increases. And it's very hard to, you know, uh, scientifically draw exact causal relationship between, okay, I rezoned this parcel. It's suddenly... Uh, was assessed at four times more. But generally, the information in Vancouver does support that. Sometimes the per square foot price of the, the resulting unit is a little bit less than it would have been as a single family home. Sometimes it's actually significantly more because it's a newer structure and so forth. But the point I'm making, the, the kind of the big, the overarching uh, anxiety that I have is that Henry George was right when he said that every penny of the value of the labor of wage earners and the entrepreneurial intelligence of the entrepreneurs ends up going into land value and that's the, and that and that that's that's what's really happening and that's that's really not a function of us doing what you know in comparison to that ends up being minor changes relative to allowable density the 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 overarching thing that's happening here is that that land value is not in Henry George's sense that giant sucking sound of of all that entrepreneurial and labor value going into the land is not uh, manifested always directly in the price of a square acre it ends up in urban areas largely manifested in the price of a square foot of inhabitable investment product and people who are in the market like yourselves who are buying a condo are not buying it anymore based on its utility value its utility is not eight hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is in your market right now its utility value is way lower than that but why you buy it is because that's the, mark, the, the global market is assessing that value at that rate, and you are willing to pay that price made easier by 2% mortgages because you have some degree of confidence that there would be a 5% increase in that value over time. And those calculations and, uh, accrue to whether you're buying a condo or you know a single-family home or a half-duplex and so forth. So that's... You know, that's kind of, you know, I keep constantly trying to explain why simply adding density, I, I lack confidence based on my experience and my analysis that even if you do it systemically across maybe even the extent of a large metropolitan region like the Bay Area, 
I'm not confident that that will, if your only objective is to achieve affordability, then that you may, you may be disappointed. So I would say, I mean, I, the land residual is everything. And I think looking at this is, is definitely the right analysis. I would say your analysis is absolutely correct if you are looking in a basically Georgist micro mold. If you're looking at it uh, as a fact like this is one price taker in one plot, everything else remains the same, you're absolutely correct. I think a spot zoning of one spot where it goes up to four on one, uh, effectively the unit per will remain about the same. You know, I, I would say like if it's, you know, one or, I mean, let's just say there's no preference either way between basically detached or being part of a condo. Uh, because overall, what is the actual mechanism which determines affordability? And it is about the alternatives a person has. If you are dropped down in a city, you are looking, okay, this person is selling a million dollar condo. What are your other options? Next door, they're selling a detached for a million bucks. Okay, well, I'm going to drive out. And if I can drive out five minutes and then suddenly there's a, a house for a hundred thousand bucks, it's like, okay, well, I'm certainly not paying a million bucks. I can find this hundred thousand dollar house five minutes away. But if you get in your car or you hop on a bus or hop on, you know, uh, one of the larger high, high transit systems. And if you stick around and it takes an hour, two hours, I guess in the Bay Area, if you if to go to Tracy or if you're in, uh, if you're in Vancouver, you're going out to Langley and Surrey and all this, like right. that's how it is in practice. You're in a sea of expensive stuff and it takes hours before you find cheap stuff. And that yeah, is the law of rent. The law that's of rent, right. it's the shape right. Right. It's the shape of land rents that's right. throughout an entire city. And if you're only doing a spot zoning, absolutely, that does not change the, the difference. My objection is, if you are really doing large-scale reshaping of densities, you would, in fact, see uh, a disciplining of the land market because if you do this right, let in my perspective, in Palo Alto, if you allow much higher densities, right now, if you are trying to get close to Palo Alto, you're driving two hours. But you know this is because you have to pass through low density, unit after unit. You have to drive through mile after mile to cross. And, and what are you passing? You're passing a couple hundred thousand different houses. If it takes only 20 minutes to pass 100,000 houses, this brings in the margin of cheaper land. That's right. And this would mean you can get more for your buck closer to where you need to be, which is more affordability. So I would say in the, this is my caveat, in a city core, if you're talking about midtown Manhattan, you know, the skyscrapers of Vancouver, downtown Palo Alto or downtown San Francisco or whatever, I believe if you upzoned all mine, I don't think the actual core will get cheaper, but a commute for a reasonable distance from a place close to the core will get cheaper. And that's what affordability is. It means shorter commutes, cheaper housing with a, with a shorter commute. And I would say that's what the analysis seems to lack. And I'm kind of curious what your response is. Well, my first response is I hope you're right. Uh, it was only a few years ago that I was uh, basically singing the same tune, that if we just, uh, you know, if we overwhelmed 
the, the metropolitan system with additional opportunity for density, uh, that the, the, the effect would be, as you suggest, that the, that the sheer mass of that new density opportunity would be, would be such that, you know, that, that two-hour commute would turn into a 20-minute commute. And by the way, that's all part of the Georgia's playbook because, you know, the, the Georgia's are all about sprawl would be eliminated if we really dealt with the land problem because post-World War II American landscape is very much a consequence of, in a way of thinking, escaping the problem of land value absorption because they built all these freeways out into the, the distant lands where the, the investment in infrastructure was such that it overcame this problem of it, it worked for a couple of decades. It, it worked. worked. Yeah. It worked for a long time. So <laughs> we're stuck with we're stuck with the result, which is a which is a massive amount of R one zoning. You know, so I I totally get that. And you know, I guess I'll say I hope you're right. You know, maybe maybe just rezoning all that would turn uh, my 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 disappointment about the law of supply and demand might be overcome if I could see a circumstance where just opening up the zoning where you where you uh, increase by a factor of five or more the allowable density throughout the the first and second rank suburbs that you would overcome this this egregious problem of people driving till they qualify and the public expenditure required to 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 chase that with uh, subway with the BART system and and uh, and freeway upgrades and so forth. You know that's the American landscape we've just described, driven I think by land value problem. So much agreement there. I'm just uh, you know Mike. So I will push back a little bit on that uh, utopian dream of yours, and I have my own utopian dreams. Uh, because of the, the visual evidence that I have in Vancouver that opening up the whole city and the adjoining cities to additional density has not produced that result. First of all, we haven't gotten the uptake on a lot of that new uh, authority. So when you so there's a certain amount of uptake. A parcel here takes advantage of this new duplexing opportunity with the two rental units, and they go out at... 1200 bucks a square foot still same price as the rest of the city and you would expect more people to uptake that but when when there's a suspicion that 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 value is going to drop the sale price is going to drop below that $1200 per square foot price that they've that they've risked everything for because they they've paid for the land based on that assumption they back away from the project so the absorption level of that is pretty, is unfortunately pretty limited, we have found from the upzoning. So you may find that the upzoning is not gonna produce the kind of results that you want either. And you may be right that, that my strategy of saying you can, you, can, uh, you can have additional density only if you have 50% affordability. And we, by doing that, Mr. Developer, Mr. or Mrs. Developer, we're doing that on your behalf because we don't want you to overpay for the land. So good luck out there. Don't overpay for the land. On the premise that our policy insistence on this will drop that land price such that the economics of people of average wages will be able to pay for the project. The project will pencil out. 
I know that's maybe my own utopian view, uh, which is possibly equal in its uh, uh, lack of uh, rea- uh, grounding in reality as your own, you know, that, that hopes for that, uh, that utopian result of lowered prices for millennials and Gen Z folk. But I'm still, you know, I'm not going to back away. You know, this is my story, and I'm sticking to it. Sure. I still think I still think that that a broad scale strategy, and the Cambridge one is a pretty good example of that. It's one whole city, even though it's a small city. It could be done on a region basis, or certainly on a on a center city like San Francisco and its immediate surrounding suburbs. The first ring, um, possibly even the second ring suburbs that the state legislature in uh, California has it within their power to do that by inserting a clause that that says in the context of the subzoning, a certain percentage, I would say 50, of this new of this new uh, of this new housing units should be pegged to median wages. Doesn't mean that it's free. Median wages in San Francisco are pretty pretty good. You know, you've got a high tech industry, your median wages are 40% higher than our median wages up here. So you've got a much better situation as a starting point if you say median wages is the benchmark. So the economics of that, if you consult with your s- smart people who are not married to the neoliberal dogma, you know, if you, if you, if you get post-neoliberal uh, economic people and planners to start to, to intervene and lobby with your state legislature, I think, I think my way is the way to go. You know, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Yeah, I, I think there's two real questions here uh, as a policy lever. And I think the two questions are, what are you doing to design and shape how the law of rent works? And the second one is, what are you doing to uh, equitably use the land subsidy, which is like the land value of a city for public benefit? Uh, and I'd say these are kind of not really inherently connected. I think they're somewhat orthogonal, uh, which is to say the first question, which is what is the shape of your city? How are people commuting? You necessarily, that doesn't really mean you're using land value correct. And a lot of, uh, a lot of Georgists are density skeptical for that reason, because you can have a place where uh, certainly your commutes are shorter, but within the city, you know, private landowners are getting every cent of it. That's right. Uh, and the other question, and so the question, okay, even if you live in sprawl hell world, you could still equitably use the land subsidy for public benefit. And it doesn't matter how bad it is because we all make it work. That's why Frank Lloyd Wright, who was a Georgist, uh, proposed a low-density car-based city because he says broad-acre city, mostly because he wanted, like, architecture as king. Because, like, if, if you just use your land subsidy correct... Everything's fine. And like, okay, not wrong. I, I, I still would not want to live there, but not wrong. Uh, so looking strictly at the land subsidy question, the question is, what is the destination of your land subsidy? Uh, and I think there are another, like a number of approaches. One would be the land subsidy is, you know, in the perfect George's mold, it is put into public coffers, redistributed to everybody in the terms of public goods or infrastructure, uh, you know, or just, you know, a dividend. Great. Another way would be you completely use land subsidy and use it to create uh, basically subsidized public housing, which is an effect of a form of infrastructure. Uh, 
That's right. Uh, and that's more the you know Vienna you know looking away. They are basically using their that's land right. subsidy for public housing. Also great. How do our cities use land subsidy right now? In practice, we're using our land subsidy to uh, to help incumbent landowners uh, either retain explicit profit in, if they sell or implicit imputed rents when they remain in a house. If you are living in Palo Alto uh, and you bought your house for $100,000, but all the houses are worth $3 million now, it is clear to me that that is actually... A, you are enjoying a land subsidy. You are taking for free something other people would pay out the nose for. Uh, and that's where our land subsidies are going. We're, they're, go- right. they're going towards, you know, landowners, which are landlords, but also homeowners. And we need and to land, take... <laughs> land <laughs> speculators too. Absolutely. And what are we doing yeah. to take them on? And I, I'd say that I think your toolbox is, it has part of the right solution but I don't think it does enough to take these people on. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe. I mean, it's a political calculation. I've already agreed with you that the best way would be, you know, a giant uh, uh, capital gains tax on land at, tr- at the point of transfer. We do a little bit of that in BC and it generates billions of dollars. So it's, it's, yeah. it's precedented. Uh, or on your property tax, have a differential between improvements and and the land value, and really tax the shit out of really big backyards to the point where you know it's punitive. And then it it and then those proceeds, which could be in the hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars, if you're thinking region wide, should be streamed into public benefit. And I favor the Vienna model, which streams that benefit into where it's most needed. Which is public, which is housing. It's not public housing. It's non-market housing, and there's a big difference between the two. Because that's the crisis where we find ourselves. You know, we don't have a crisis of affordability relative to lattes and and uh, avocado toast. You know, that's not really where the problem is. The problem is nobody can put a roof over their head. So if we could just deal with that, the equity the equity issue would be very much managed. And I also think other environmental issues like such as we've alluded to, which is excess commuting distances and taxpayer consequences to overblown infrastructure of freeways and subways and so forth would be would be mitigated if, if we didn't have 70% of our people traveling more than an hour twice a day to get back and forth, only, only provoked to do that because they couldn't afford a house closer in. So, you know, I get all that. So maybe, you know, maybe you and others can convince me that those that those systemic ways uh, are politically achievable within my lifetime, and my you know my lifetime's getting short. Uh, so I, I'm I'm a little bit more uh, anxious to see this problem solved in the in the near term. And my my analysis is that the uh, that the the systemic uh, recapture of the land value, which in in George's terms is is only there because us workers teachers, baristas, uh, hospital orderlies, bus drivers, everybody who makes the city happen, and the entrepreneurs who who, uh, who own the, the shops and the whatever else is capital infrastructure on top of the ground, all that value ends up getting absorbed into the ground to the point where the, 
the regional economy strains under the load and the political consequences which we're seeing exhibited in the in the in, in the intergenerational conflict between people your age and my age uh, because of this disparity uh, get to the breaking point all those things can and should be addressed but i'm wandering a little way from, uh, a little far afield from my point which is obviously i could be wrong but based on 30 years of looking at this i think the immediate opportunity and the California legislation is a very important opportunity in this respect to put a clause in that says this up that this upzoning must come and come uh, uh, in, in return for the upzoning there must be some some assurance of affordability. It may be possible that the market would generate that affordability, right? So your point, maybe it does. So then there wouldn't have to be non-market options. You know, maybe just blowing the whole thing open. Uh, would suddenly produce, you know, a 50% reduction in the cost per square foot of housing close into where jobs are. That would be wonderful. And I'd say, hallelujah. I'm not confident that that would happen. Maybe it would happen. But if it doesn't happen, if this experiment with just blowing up the density uh, restrictions uh, and the zoning restrictions throughout the region uh, doesn't produce the desired results, uh, it, well, that, that's a problem. It just means that the inequality is being even further baked into the system so that only tech bros are going to be able to afford that condo and the, the baristas are going to be still, uh, I don't want to use the F word for, for, uh, for a podcast, maybe sent up more broadly, but they are screwed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think there's a synthesis in, in place here, which, I mean, I don't disagree with any of the, uh, the value capture. I mean, I'd say the ideal value capture is broad-based, and I, I'd say project-based. I worry that you won't capture it all. Uh, but, I mean, the real question is, how do you move from here to a broad-based system? And I, I'd say you get there by having less people who are have material interests to not get there. Uh, but in general... I mean, I'd say that we're pretty close to as long as you're doing something which changes stuff and then also recoups. Like it's like if you have a a change in housing in which the baseline increases from its current awful position to a higher position uh, from R1 to something more like townhouses everywhere, and then on top of it says, well, you can you can even have higher levels, uh, but if you do, there's going to be value capture extractions. I was like, okay. I mean, I, to me, that sounds like it's the best of all worlds, which is you avoid the problem of your baseline being awful, and you have to add extra stuff to it too, making sure like if you zone for townhouses, you can't build a big single-family unit. Like you can actually you can actually have maximum floor sizes. You know, that's a real thing too. Uh, I mean, really, in the end, I think you need to... Uh, use more to discipline incumbents. And I, I absolutely agree with you. And you say the politics aren't there. They aren't. As long as the politics, as long as incumbents are intransigent, comfortable, rich, and politically connected, they won't get touched. But I think in time, as a number of things happen, which is uh, young people continue to age into a world which isn't ready for them, and, you know, boomers and older people kind of you know, uh, euphemistically age out. Die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Less euphemistically. Like that's, uh, I mean, I think you're going to have a different political calculus and I, 
think we need the roadmap in place because I we're not going to flip a light switch on tomorrow. But the real question is how are we going to get there within some time frame? Yeah, and I think we're in a, towards the end of our conversation, so yeah, we're it's a good place to good place. We've 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 unpacked a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I kind of you know kind of responding to what you just said. What you said could be true. Uh, rezone everything for uh, townhouse density, and then beyond that, you get an exaction on a kind of district by district or spot by spot basis. Maybe that maybe that would work. My fear on that one, of course, is that by allowing that townhouse density, which, by the way, uh, four dwelling units on a 3,000-square-foot lot in Vancouver is townhouse density. That's 40 dwelling units per acre. Uh, parking is an issue, but it's still 40 units per acre, which is legally allowable. So we, we have rezoned the whole city for townhouse density. Well, that's like a baseline, but, too. You need, to, you need to get rid of parking tomorrow. Although- yeah, I know. I know. That's a whole separate conversation. And I... 100% agree with you on that, and particularly in a city like Vancouver, which has tremendous walkability and transit. But let's set that aside for the moment. I fear that my fear, which is kind of a closing comment, my anxiety, I hope you're right, but my anxiety is that if you just did that townhouse density up zone, you might also engender a land value increase that when you went to get that additional new project at a higher density, it would end up competing against that higher value for the land. The base value of that land would already be pegged at townhouse density, grounded in that $1,200 per square foot a number, which which has everything to say about the residual. Sure. So that's my anxiety. I mean, the, so, land, the, the land, if you do that tomorrow, the landowners will get uh, a, a bonus for free. And that's not that's not great, but it's how you grease the wheels in my mind. It's 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 imperfect, but I can maybe live with it, and we can get that value capture back later. But yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, I I would just say in closing, I would hope I would hope going ahead that you would feel that California urbanists and Georgists or something I think are hearing what you're saying. We get where you're coming from, and I think we can work together to help craft legislation to get better and better. I would just like. I mean, I, I would just—I think that I would hope you would notice the, notice the difference between people who are hungry for change and want to see real things happen, even if it hurts uh, the placidity of our very comfortable people, and the number of bad faith people who are just hungry for a soundbite in order to do nothing. And I would say those people are dangerous. Yeah, I get that. Well, you know, the reason why I talked to uh, Livable California was they're the per- first people to call me up. Oh. So I said yes, and thank you, Mark, for uh, giving me yet another opportunity to, you know, I think in a in a more fulsome and extended way, talk about what I what I really mean, so that hopefully things don't get misinterpreted. Because I'm I'm very much committed to this issue of affordability for your generation, and struggling to figure out how that could be systemically and systematically uh, engendered given the constraints, the global economic circumstances that we've discussed a lot today. And, uh, I, you know, and I think I've, I've tried as best as I can and with a fair amount of passion to explain my analysis and my, 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 uh, my, my, uh, my strategy, my strategy choices, which, which are grounded in what I think is politically achievable. 
but I agree with you that maybe there are other things that are politically achievable. And I don't have the same level of confidence that an opening up of uh, the, 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 the restrictions on R1 across uh, the, the entire state in the absence of uh, some requirement for affordability would be efficacious if your objective is, is affordability. But I, at the same time, understand the frustration of, your, of an entire generation who sees, you know, 90% of the California landscape completely locked up and inaccessible to them when they may have grown up in those exact same neighborhoods. I get that. Yeah. Now, I mean, as I said before, I don't think that uh, basically a liberalization of density is going to create affordability, although I do believe it will help. Uh, I do think it will tend to make more open-mindedness. And I'd say if more people are talking about large-scale value capture, uh, you're moving in a good direction. And I'd say... Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic in that sense. Well, we'll leave it at that, Mark. And Great. Well, and, and one more time, if you want to hear more of your, uh, the book is out there, Six City, available in PDF. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. Sure. All right. Great, Mark. Talk to you later. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye there. We have been talking to Patrick Condon and then debating about the book Six City, his conclusions about land value and urban planning and much more. Listen to this episode and all previous episodes of this podcast and radio show at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Key's Issue, Stanford.